Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. I am super excited to announce that my first children's book, Love Magic, is now on Amazon for purchase. Love Magic is a heartfelt and magical story about the enduring power of love. It's about a little girl named Charlie who has a loved one who passes, and her journey addresses the universal question of how do we stay connected with our loved ones when they pass on. It gently touches upon the magical ways in which our loved ones can continue to guide us through nature, music, love, and everything in between. I hope you will check it out on Amazon and possibly purchase it. And if you do, please leave me a review. Without further ado, let's go to the next interview. A little tidbit about today's um, interview and a few others I'll be doing, they will be a little bit longer than usual because these are the presentations that these wonderful speakers gave at the esteemed conference at International Association for Near-Death Studies. I think you're going to really enjoy this information I wanted wanted to share with all of you. Thank you. Today, I am honored and thrilled to have Peter Panagore back on the show. Peter Panagore is Audible best-selling author of Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is Just the Beginning. He is also an entrepreneur and ordained pastor. Peter graduated from Yale University, where he completed his Master's of Divinity with a focus on the practices and writings in the classics of Western mysticism. A two-time near-death experiencer, Peter first died in 1980 of hypothermity while ice climbing, and then again of a heart attack in 2015. And if you listen to his past interview, which I strongly suggest you do because it's amazing. It's in two episodes. Um, he talks in detail um, about those those experiences. And he'll talk about them a little bit today. But today we're going to focus on Peter's uh, all-inspiring, comforting, profound, magical, I think that's the best word, for the talk he gave at the International Association for Near-Death Studies. The title of his talk is today, The Great Global Awakening, Artfully Describing the Ineffable. So without further ado, welcome to the program, Peter. Hey, Marla, good to see you again. Good to see you again. Always good to see you. So I'm just going to let you go for it. I might interject a few questions, but, um, but anyway, you, you have it. Thanks. And thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And hello, audience, too. <laughs> so Marla asked me to begin by talking a little bit about mystical experiences. So a lot of people are coming to understand that near-death experiences are a real thing. And we're going to talk about that today a little bit. But near-death experiences aren't the only kind of mystical experiences. A near-death experience is a type of mystical experience. In Henry James's book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, he has a chapter called The Characteristics of Mysticism. And there are four characteristics. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because you may have had a mystical experience and you don't even know it. Uh, but So here's the characteristics uh, according to James. The first one is, is that they are temporary. They, are, they, they have a beginning and an end. So that's one thing. They're passive. They happen to you. You don't make them happen. They're ineffable. They happen inside you. 
and they, they, but you can't speak about it. There's no language for it. And, and, and they leave you with wisdom. They leave you with what uh, some folks call noetic knowledge. So there's ineffable knowledge, a gift inside of you. And these come in lots of varieties. You could have a visitation from the dead, uh, an after-death communication. Marjorie Woolicott at the International Association for Near-Death Studies in her last paper, which I had the honor of introducing her, uh, she said that there were, in her survey, out of somewhere 350 people they surveyed, more or less, 45% of the people surveyed had an after-death communication. Now, what is that? That's when a loved one comes to visit you and communicates to you telepathically without moving their lips, no language, love, beauty, um, beauty of heaven, forgiveness, understanding, those sorts of things, but it's, it leaves a mark on a person. Uh, this is an example. So what happens if there's a believer, a person who believes in the afterlife, but they don't know, and their grandmother comes back and communicates to them love and her existence, that she still exists, that grandchild from then forward knows, doesn't believe, knows that the grandmother is not truly dead and is actually still alive. Might not know that about themselves or anybody else, but they know that one thing. And that is mystical experience. Because imagine trying to tell somebody about that. Oh, my grandma came back and visited me at a cocktail party, you know, or, or you know, on the subway. And some people would say, oh yeah, me too. But most people would raise an eyebrow because mystical experiences are not allowed to be spoken of in public. So they're very common, but they're taboo. And so I'm gonna pick up now, I'm gonna read you my paper that I presented at the IANS group at this last conference. So here we go. And this is how I began, okay? So uh, at, this is at the, at the 2020 IANS conference, I ended my keynote talk by asking for a public square conversation about what are currently called spiritually transformative experiences and historically called mystical experiences. The research and publications of IANS scientists in establishing the veracity of near-death experiences and more recently of many other kinds of spiritually transformative experiences, such as Kundalini Awakening, also mentioned by Marjorie Willicott, which goes by many names in many cultures or shared death experiences, which are called SDEs, where you have a, an experience with somebody who's dying as part of their death experience connected to heaven or an after-death communication, which I just mentioned, an ADC. These are not new phenomena. They are ancient human experiences that have been repressed for centuries, particularly in the West. It's taboo to speak about our spiritually transformative experiences. I hid mine for 40 years. Bring it up at your next neighborhood barbecue. I, I should have mentioned I hid my, my NDE for 20 years and I hid my mystical experiences for 20 years more than that. I just have come out with these things because it's still taboo. So if you bring it up at your next neighborhood barbecue or in a committee meeting or at a local bar, gauge the response. Uh, my grandmother visited me. Gauge the response of the faces of the people. Woo-woo, nut job. Talking about mystical experiences in the public square begets social isolation. Nobody wants to be that person, even if it happened to you. So secretly, however, over 45% of those surveyed, as shown in last, at the IANS conference, the last IANS conference by Marjorie Woolicott, 45% of the population have had an after-death communication for a disembodied loved one. 45%. Almost half the population. Her figure reflects the informal survey that I conducted in Episcopalian, Congregational, Independent, and Unitarian churches around New England. In every pulpit I preached as I toured Sunday to Sunday for 18 months, I conducted a survey from the pulpit. In every church, on average, 50% of attendees that morning experienced a lift, uh, pardon me, a life-changing after-death communication. 50% of the people in the pews. So that's 5% more than Marjorie's. 
My survey, now backed by numbers, Marjorie's numbers, lead me to the conclusion that as many as the tens of millions of near-death experiences that are living right now in the world today, think about that number, tens of millions of near-death experiences living in the world right now, today, that's a Pim von Lommel number, that there are exponentially millions more of human beings who've had spiritually transformative experiences, but fear to talk about it. And now is the time to talk about it publicly, aloud, from the rooftops. So why now? Medical science has been resurrecting the dead through resuscitation by the tens of millions worldwide ever since the 1960s. Thank you, Dr. Pim von Lomo from IANS. There is right now a growing and global great awakening underway. 40 years ago, the daring and then skeptical researchers of IANS noticed the near-death experience phenomena and began to research them. They discovered, as the mystical geniuses have known and have artfully described, and hundreds of books down through the centuries, and every religion, well, science has discovered that mystics were telling the truth. That's what these scientists discovered at IANS, that mystics have been telling the truth. We are spiritually consciousness. We are a spiritual consciousness having an embodied experience, or as you may have heard it said, we are uh, having heavenly, we are spiritual beings having heavenly experience. Now, what, what, how's it go, Marla? I'm blanking. We are spiritual beings having a earthly, an earthly experience. Yes. Yes. A body experience. We are spiritual beings having uh, human experience. Something human experience. Good. That's it. That's, right. it. That's, it. That's it. That's it. That's it. All right. I should have prepared that, but I wasn't off the cuff with that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, attributed to Kierkegaard, but not necessarily said by him. Your mystical experience has revealed. So if you had a mystical experience, this mystical experience revealed a truth to you, a truth with a, with a capital T, a, a wisdom of understanding and the true nature of your being, of your true nature, in your true nature. A mystical experience happens to the soul first and then gets translated by the brain to understand it. In your, when you have a mystical experience, it happens deep inside yourself at the very place of the origin of your being, in the soul, in your consciousness itself. And this leaves you with a knowledge of your soul, but it also leaves you with a knowledge uh, of its wisdom about the structure of all of the universe that it's not what it appears to be. And this is felt, you feel this thing. It changes your life. How do you know you had it? Because from that day forward, you're a little bit a different person. And when you recall it, when you remember this mystical experience, it remains vivid in your memory. Unlike other memories, it remains vivid there as it does in mine, because its origin is not in the brain, it's in the soul. It's underneath inside. And maybe it gave you a spiritual compulsion, gave me a spiritual compulsion, or maybe you repressed it because the church or society or your temple or your mosque told you to repress it by belittling you when you brought it up. When I asked from the pulpit in each of these nearly 20 congregations where I spoke over these 18 months, who here has had an after-death communication, 50% raised their hands. 50% admitted to having told one person, one trusted person, that everybody told somebody, none of the 50, zero of the 50, had ever spoken about it in public, especially not in church, because the Bible says, and no marvel, for even Satan fashioneth himself into an angel of light. So the Bible itself denies these experiences, and yet by the tens of millions, we have them. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. that's where that's from. This sentence puts the fear of God, not just in some experiencers, but more powerfully, it, it undergirds the repression of mystical discourse in Western culture. If you have this experience and you're not allowed to talk about it, then nobody knows. It's like a big, huge public secret. Half the population has it, but nobody knows the other half has it. Nobody knows. No Christian's going to talk about meeting a being of light 
even if that light brings love, joy, understanding, hope, or peace, because the preacher, the priest, might think it's the devil in disguise. And certainly that's the popular Christian misunderstanding based on this passage. So I want to thank Marjorie Woolicott for giving me a sleepless night after I heard her speak. After I introduced her, I was awake all night long, and it caused me to rise early that next morning, the day of my talk, and to rewrite my entire talk based on her. Her science blessed my talk. Her science blessed my talk. That's a weird thing to say. Science isn't in the business of blessing, but in this case, it is. The other undergirding beam is, is reason and the materialism of science that has tossed out until now what they couldn't see and couldn't measure. And the reason why IONS is working so well is because they're able to measure these things. They're able to quantify and co collect and quantify the data of many people that they've interviewed to find out the differences and similarities of after-death experiences, near-death experiences, shared-death experiences. Now we can measure it with evidence. And I'm not here to give you evidence today. That's not my job. Evidence is the important job of IANS. I'm an experiencer. And I'm here to say that there is a great global awakening underway. And if you're a spiritually transformed person who came to this to change, who came to a change through your mystical experience, then you're part of this too. We are all part of this, near-death experiencers and all the rest of the mystics. We are part of the web of life, the web of light on earth, pouring light into the world through our heart openings, where the grace of mystical experience touched us and in touching us, connected us and made us aware of the connection. And that's what you feel when you have one of these experiences. You become aware of the deep connection. You may not be able to articulate it. You can't. There's no way to talk about it. You have to use metaphor to speak on it. But you know that it's there. And that connection inside yourself through a mystical experience that goes right to the core of the light itself, of the beingness of God, that also is the same thing that's in the other person who's also had one. I mean, it's in everybody, but, but the other person who's also had one has this illumination inside them, and there's a connection that flows between us. And it's not of our own doing. It's the light itself speaking to the, my light in me, speaking to the light in you, and the light in you hearing the light in me speak. The light in me sees the light in you. The light in you sees the light in me. Earth is changing rapidly. The effects of climate change are now. We human beings are headed into a future, and you know this because you read the news, you've seen this all over the world, a future of floods, intense hurricanes, great droughts, desertification, if that's a new word for you, the desertification, that's what they're afraid of in the Western United States, desertification, which is not just a drought, it's decades of drought and social and political and economic change. The, I just saw this article this week where they produced a map of the world and they showed all of the cities with all of the flood of all of the cities that's coming our way. And science has warned us about this. So what's humanity gonna do? This, this is a great upheaval that's already on our doorstep. And what's humanity gonna do about this? Religion has divided us and divides us today. We have a culture war in the United States, and we have a real religious war going on too in the world. Anytime you want to look around, there's a religious war somewhere in the world. The Buddhists against in Myanmar, or, or you know, we just left Afghanistan. I, 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 I'll kill you and send you to my hell for your unbelief. Your hell and heaven are fantasies of your books, but my books tell me the truth. And I go to my hell and I go to my heaven 
for sending you to my hell. I go to my heaven for sending you to my hell. It's absurdity. And every major religion was started with a mystic. Buddha, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Baba Ula of the Baha'i, Guru Nanak of the Sikh, for example. Mystics abhor institutionalization. Mysticism itself abhors institutionalization. Institutionalization creates these stories and dogmas and doctrines that are based in belief, not in experience. And these, these doctrines and dogmas divide us. What unites us? Love unites us. Christianity in America is about belief. But you, if you've had a mystical experience, there's at least part of you that knows that knows rather than believes. You know by experience. Each mystical or spiritually transformative experience lodges a little tiny bit, a portion of wisdom inside your soul. And you know this truth, but when you say it, or you try to say it, it lacks all sorts of depth. It loses all its strength of feeling. Like telling that your grandmother came to visit you and left you, left you with this radiant glow of love. But when you bring it up in conversation, you can't communicate that. So you have a story that cannot be told in truth with a capital T or with accuracy because you can't capture this, this experience. Your problem is the same one faced by all of the mystics, including Lao Tzu and Rumi and Hafez and Kabir. All of them used poetry, imagery, metaphor, simile, symbols, and mythology to speak the unspeakable. When we hear their words, when we listen with the ear of our hearts, their words down through the centuries resonate in us. Their frequency is carried inside their words they penned centuries ago, which pierce our living hearts today. Because Love is timeless. Mysticism is timeless. This moment of love comes to rest in me. Many beings in one being. In one grain, a thousand sheaf stacks. Inside the needle's eye, a turning of night stars. Love comes to rest in Rumi. Many beings in one being. In one wheat grain, a thousand sheaf stacks in 1001. Inside the finest needle's eye, the turning of our galaxy. This is what Rumi's talking about, this contradiction, a needle's eye, and inside that is the, the whole galaxy. Inside of you is the, is the galaxy, the, the size of the divine inside of you. One sheaf of wheat is the same as a thousand. You are part of a global awakening, okay? All the children of light, every one of us. The near-death experiences, as we begin to speak around the world and we, we publish our books and they make documentaries and we bring this to the forefront of the human consciousness, we, we announce that this thing is a phenomena of tens of millions of people. It's not just about near-death experience, it's about you. It's about all of us together. It's not... Because from the heaven's view, there's no difference between us. There's no, I'm at a higher level and you're at a low level, or you're at a higher level and I'm at a low level. That doesn't exist. We are all these children of light, of equality. We are equally made of light. And if you've had a spiritually transformative experience after which your life radically changed, then you had, in Christian language, a born-again experience. Mystical experiences reform us. We are born again. I've been born again twice in this life with, the, with NDE. I came back a different person each time. And each of my mystical experiences that I've had, I've come back a different person each time. Every time you have a mystical experience, somebody visits you from the dead, you're a different person tomorrow than you were today. You now know something you could not have learned in, uh, from a book. Each mystical experience causes some level of the shattering of self. The new self, the changed self can and will renew again and again with each 
successive experience. Every time this happens, a mystical experience happens to you, you are changed by it. Your course direction moves another degree or five degrees uh, closer to the North Star to continue with a little bit of me metaphor there. And this is my experience too. And I use Christian language mixed with the language of science, mixed with the language of mysticism from around the world and these other traditions, because language matters. Because language matters because it's all we have to communicate it. And if the language that I'm using um, is accessible to you, I can then weave inside it the divine presence itself and speak from my heart, from my heart to your heart. And one of the things that comes with mystical experience is humility. And humility really matters a lot because we each receive through grace a little gift of understanding limited in scope, expressed through our words, expressed through our cultural symbols, expressed through our myths, but it's only a portion of it. It's just a little bit. And nobody holds the, the whole truth of it. Nobody has the capacity. I definitely don't. My brain, I came back with this much knowledge of what I knew on the other side, this tiny bit. My brain can't hold it but I came back with some, and you have some, and together we have a collective. Mystical experience is not just private. Mystical experience is communal. It's shared. It's meant to be shared. And that's the one thing we're not doing. We're not sharing it because of repression. And as this century of communication, so that we live in this incredible century of communication. I'm talking to Marla. She's in California. I'm on the coast of Maine. Who knows where in the world you are? But we are living in this century of communication. And as the century unfolds, and this is the reason why uh, NDEs are talking, because NDEs, we're networking around the globe. I, I talk to people in Israel. I talk to people in Japan, South Africa. I, I, all over the world, I talk to NDEs. And let's remember that every mystical writer down through the century wrote about their experience in the context of their lives. Muslim mystics used Muslim language. Taoists used Taoism. Zen Buddhists used Zen Buddhist language. Christians used Christian language. Jews used Jewish language. It's all in the context of the time and the place where they are. They all knew that no words can confine or define the unitive state of being. When in the oneness state, there is no self to experience it. If you are present in the oneness state, then you are not in the oneness state. This presents an extreme problem of talking about the unspeakable when the you of you, the you who you thought you are, is gone. So not only can you not bring it back because it's metaphor, because you can, you can only speak metaphorical language about it, you, can't, you weren't even there when it happened. This is the history of mysticism. This is what the books teach us all down through the century and all around the world. The deeper you dive, you are brought into the presence of the divine, the less of you that's there. And the title of my talk is Artfully Languaging the Ineffable. And language can become a prison. Believe this one thing or go to hell. So if all religions started with mystical experience and then they become dogmatized and doctrinized, it becomes about belief and then language becomes the prison instead of the, the, the key. Believe this one thing or go to hell. Believe this one thing and the way that I or we define it or get shunned or cast out. Language can also open the heart to the living presence to the ear that hears with the heart from the lips of the soul. And as you read, as you speak, remember we all struggle to express the inexpressible. So be humble with your listening. Be humble with your speech. Know that whoever is trying to talk to you is doing the best that they can in the language that they have. I had a conversation recently with a woman who described her experience in terms of uh, star systems, a star system entered into my heart and my soul was connected to a star and the moon entered inside of me. And inside her words, I heard the divine presence. 
It didn't matter what she was saying. It mattered that I could feel the divine within her. And she did her best to communicate it. And she did communicate it because I could feel it. Listen to all mystical experiences with your poetic ear. Read with your literary mind. And you're going to see inside the Upanishads, inside the book of Genesis, not just history, not infallibility, not history, not infallibility, but myths that tell forth the truth without needing to be literally true. Come to the public square humbly, knowing that mystical knowers like you are waiting there for you. We are here. You can talk to me. And understand that some may not be where you are. If 45% of the population have had an after-death communication, there's another percentage of the population who have been visited by angels or beings of light or Jesus or Buddha or Kali. They might not be exactly where you are. Let them be where they are. And listen and feel with your open heart. And don't judge their language. Listen with your heart. Artfully languaging the divine begins with listening through the creative ear of your inner self. So don't get yourself hooked on the words or the story being told. Listen with an open mind, and that will bring you an open heart. The unmanifested, capital U, the uncreated, capital U, is above all language and all religion and is beauty and love joy and peace. Islam has 99 names for God. Look them up. Google 99 names for God. They are beautiful. I use them. I think with them. And I'm going to close with this and then Marjorie, um, Marlene and I will have a talk. Sorry about that. I do that. <laughs> it's okay. Because anyway. we've been talking about Marjorie quite a bit. Oh, we were talking about Marjorie. <laughs> exactly. Marjorie on the bread. Yeah. Um, so weeks ago, weeks ago in preparation for, for this, for this, that paper that I presented at IAN, so this months ago now, I, I asked the following question in a Facebook near-death experience group in preparation for this talk. This is the question I asked. Using one word, summarize your experience of the afterlife. So this is for near-death experiencers. I'm asking them in particular, use one word to summarize your experience of the afterlife. And the word I picked was love. What's yours, I said. And there were 70 answers, okay? And these are the 70 words. These are the words that near-death experiencers left behind. I'll just read them. Love, pure love, loving, unconditional love, agape love, all forms of love. That happens. All of those loves, that was 15 times. Peace or peaceful, eight times. Amazing, twice. One each, bliss, eternal, pain-free, acceptance, light, belonging, no fear, freedom, relaxed, unjudging, alive, creating, freedom, orgasmic, joy, epic, energy, nothing, reincarnation, pure joy, choice, reassurance, indestructible, horrific, calmness, serenity, pain, awe, beautiful, exciting, blissful, stillness, nirvana, and judgment. And all these words apply to me. I didn't pick all those words, and but they all apply to me, including horrifically painful and self-judging life review, which led me directly into the oneness of being. I went through my life review where I suffered all the pain that I'd given away in my life, and it was horrifically painful, and it was full of self-judgment. And then unburdened, released of these attachments, I entered the oneness of all the positive words I just read. Love, beauty, peace, acceptance, all of that. And the largest word, the largest word, the most used word in the, in the answers was love. So during this great global awakening, which has been underway for 50 plus years, since the 1960s, since they started raising the dead with medical science, 
and creating this phenomena of near-death experience that spread around the globe by the tens of millions. And we're all struggling to find words to speak about the unspeakable. And we're engineers and teachers and illiterates and artists and, and ship's captains and, and, and the janitors. We're all these people from around the world with all these different languages and cultures trying to say the thing that's unspeakable. So let a humble heart of love listen for you and then speak through you and understand we are all struggling to express the inexpressible. Each of us is like this little LED bulb at the end of a fiber optic cable of love, shining light into the darkness. We're each like this way down. There's this cable that comes from the divine and we are this little light and it's shining out from us in the darkness, shining light out from us into the world, illuminating each other. This is the first time in the history of the world that anything like this has happened. There's always been near-death experiencers. There's always been mystical experiencers. There's never been tens and tens and tens of millions of us all at once. This is a new thing because medical science is raising the dead. And we're all coming back with this degree of illumination that is life-changing. I'm not doing the thing I was going to do in my life. I came back a different person. Each When I say I got reconstructed, I came back a different person each time. And the thing that was dominant in my heart and light, life is the light itself. We're here illuminating each other. We don't own the light. I am not the light of the world. I am a vessel of light. I am also light from light. I am both and not. I am this and that. I am a human being and light. I am these two things here, but in the essence of the ground of my being, I am only light. And I spend my life dying to myself in order to let the light come through. And when I see the light inside of you and you see it inside of me, it's because, as I said, the light sees itself. The light speaks for itself. The light hears itself inside us. And together we magnify the light when we gather. It's this incredible thing. When I go to these IANS conferences in person, it's like walking into a, a, a universe, a big, huge bubble of love, of light. It's like walking through a force shield. And when I'm on the inside, it's like, whoa, because all these NDEs radiate the divine presence. Never before in the history of the world has been there so many powerful and humble mystics walking the earth. We're just the heralds reminding you what you already know inside yourself and encouraging you to speak up in safe places, in the public square if you can, but in private, definitely talk to your friends. I, I, I want to know how many of, there, of the, us are there. I want to know how many of us are really out there. This is an estimate, tens of millions of us. We To know how many there are of us, we need to talk. We need to express. We need to bring this into the public eye. We need to bring it into our local public eye. If you go to a church, bring it up at church. You're going to find out that there are people like you. If you go to a mosque, you're going to find out there are people like you. You go to a synagogue, you're going to find out there are people like you. You go to your ashram, same deal. You go to your yoga studio, same deal. You go to your sangha, same deal. We are everywhere. We just don't know it because we don't talk about it. So climate change is coinciding with the great global awakening or vice versa. Chicken or egg? The answer to that question is egg, by the way, because the dinosaurs came before the, the birds. But in this case, I don't know whether it's climate change that it was it kind of started at the same time the Great Global Awakening happened, which came first. It's They're happening together. They're happening together. And so humanity is facing this great event of climate change. And we're experiencing it ourselves. And unless we get it together scientifically and reduce our carbon footprint, it's going to get worse, people. 
but there's hope. And that's what this great global awakening is for, is to give us hope to be strong in the light because this is the one thing that breaks apart our divisions, our cultural tribal divisions. This light has no tribe. We are all in one tribe with it. It doesn't divide by tribe. We are one tribe in the light. I've been talking to a friend in, um, in England and she's Muslim by culture and upbringing, but she's a near-death experiencer. She's not really Muslim anymore. My friend in Israel, she's Jewish by culture. She's Jewish by, by, um, by language. She speaks Hebrew, but she's not really Jewish anymore. I was raised Christian. I'm not a Christian anymore. God had no religion. God was is love. I use the, the word God because it's shorthand, the divine, the ineffable, the, the nothing, the isness, the nowness, the energy, whatever you want to call it. This is a real thing in our lives that doesn't just end the day that we come back from the dead. It lives in us on and on and on. And you can make that happen with your mystical experience too. You can focus on this. You can focus on your experience with your meditation by aiming your heart at the place of feeling and pull that opening wider. This is an inward path, but we do live in the world. And human beings, we are an intersection of flesh and spirit. We're not the only ones, but we are definitely an intersection of flesh and spirit. And through the hundreds of millions of mystics who are alive today, hundreds of millions of us, we stand a chance to nudge the world toward a better future for all of us. We might not be able to solve climate change, you and I, but we can nudge the world toward a better future for all of us by beginning to talk about our mystical experiences, by aiming our hearts interiorly toward the divine light, and by living out of that space with each other with kindness and love and bravery and courage. Because this isn't about politics and it's not about religion. This is the poetry of the soul speaking love through each of us, to each of us, inside of each of us. Because you really are the light of the world. And together we illuminate each other. We're spider web, we're a spider web of light all around the world. Just trust the light inside yourself. Trust it with a humble heart. And let love rule. Now, before I was an NDEer, I was a natural-born mystic. My mystical life began when I was five years old. And my first out-of-body experience into heaven carried me, carried my astral self, a being of light, my angel, carried me into heaven. Before my first NDE, I had six rapturous, self-shattering, transformative mystical experiences that I kept secret because I learned in my first experience not to talk about it because nobody understood me. I was only five, but I was not understood. And I knew, I knew that if I talked about it, I was going to get in trouble because it was blasphemous as a Catholic Orthodox kid to be raptured into heaven. What made me special? So after my first NDE, I became supercharged with multiple and increasingly intensive mystical experiences. And I'm going to close today, this evening, or wherever, whatever time this is, wherever you are, um, with a request that came to me while I was moderating Marjorie Willicott's talk a couple of weeks ago. When uh, she temporarily lost her feed in the middle of this and I had to jump in and like fill the airspace. And so I did. I began to tell a story and I stopped. I started telling the story about um, my mystical experiences and how I learned to keep them to myself. And like most of the frightened churchgoers, 
I didn't want to lose my status or my reputation by talking about mystical experiences. I was talking about something that happened on the side of the road where I had a Kundalini awakening. This is after my NDE. And it was an experience of no self. And it was a car wreck. And it was, I could tell about that story some other time. What I want to talk about is the result of it. I didn't want to lose the respect of my family, my friends, or my peers. I kept it a secret. But what happened on that particular day and over the next three days was not secret. I was so made other by this awakening, this Kundalini experience of no self that I couldn't keep it a secret. I was a student and I was married, newly married. And it happened in public and it scared the hell out of my friends and my brand new wife. This Kundalini experience, as Christians might call it, a descent of the Holy Spirit. Well, when I came out nationally as an NDEer, uh, in my book, Heaven is Beautiful, I, I talked a little bit about it. But talking about my Kundalini experience, which, which my friends were so scared about, my wife was so scared about that they talked about having a mental health intervention at Yale New Haven Hospital because I was not behaving as a normal person. I was constantly being raptured into the presence of the divine. I would leave for periods of time from their points of view. But from my point of view, I was in the divine presence. But to describe that to them made me sound crazy. And I learned the same reason. I, I didn't want to come out with my near-death experience because I didn't want to end up being thought of as nuts. So I convinced my friends and my wife that it was a mystical experience. My wife knew that I had had a near-death experience. Nobody else did. And I told my friends. I didn't convince them. I had to live normally for a while before they believed me. But then I came out with my book. And now I'm coming out slowly with bits and pieces of the rest of my mystical life. Because I know that you have them too. This in-body kundalini awakening of no self shattered me again. And I came back a different person. And you can't hide that kind of thing from people who love you. You can mask it. You can pretend. But it leaks out all over the place. My plea to you is this. The more of us who speak, the more normalized this will become. Talk to somebody. At least one person. Talk to me, or better yet, if you're able, talk to a group, talk about it in public. You're gonna find out you're not alone. You're gonna find out that mystical experiences are the norm for at least half the population. And don't get all hung up on the language, get hung up on the light. Mm -hmm. So that's my little talk. And um, thank you, Peter, so much. I wow. Thank you for sharing. I do. I do have a couple of questions. Um, for those, for the listeners who are feel like that they haven't had a mystical experience, or maybe maybe they haven't. And I know, by the way, for the listeners, Marjorie is going to be coming on and talking, um, really doing her talk that she did at IN, so you can refer back to Peter's. I, Peter's will probably air first because I'm not interviewing her till the end of January. So <laughs> maybe we can talk about that. But um, how can people, I, I can just imagine some are saying, I want one of these, <laughs> you know, I want to understand, I want to, and as Marjorie talks about deep contemplative practice um, and, and some other ways that, that people can experience. Once again, it's not something that 
we do to ourselves. It just happens. But what are the practices that people can do to, I guess, encourage that? Well, the practices do encourage it. And the reason why they get handed down century after century around the world is because they work. Um, and so uh, there's lots of different practices people use. Um, the, one of the most unusual ones would be Cezanne, the painter, who painted the same mountain over and over again and says that it was a meditation for him. Mm -hmm. So but that I, I use a more formal techniques. Yes. I, I practice, and for close to 40 years, I practice two forms of contemplation primarily. I practice centering prayer meditation. And centering prayer practice grew up out of the Catholic Trappist movement um, in Massachusetts in conjunction, I guess, with Jack Cornfield uh, and Theravada Buddhism. And so it's a practice of chanting to learn to control your thoughts by, by mental focus and breath so that you can stop thinking and stop thoughts because uh, because all we do is think. And, and it, it turned out, I knew early on that the one thing that's between me and the divine is me. I am the, my false self, my, my personality, my character as a human being, my false self is in my way in this dual world. And so the practice is very simple. Centering prayer practice is super simple. Feet on the floor, sitting in a chair, hands on your lap, lights are off, phone is off, pick a prayer, pick a chant. I started out, when I started Centering Prayer, it was called Contemplative Meditation. This is in 1977. And um, I used a number one. You don't, doesn't, doesn't have to be a holy word. It just has to be a, a word that focuses your mind. Uh, the recommendation was something that would be aim your heart to the divine. So some phraseology to aim your heart to, I am the light of the world. Um, uh, love is all there is, well, something like that. I use the Jesus prayer. What's and the I, Jesus prayer? Jesus prayers is the most popular prayer in Eastern Orthodoxy. So like, it, like in Catholicism, everybody knows the Hail Mary. In Eastern Orthodoxy, everybody knows the Jesus prayer. And it has a, a bunch of different varieties. And it's, it's, this is the long version. And people are going to be like, say what? Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, that's the, that's the prayer. And we can talk about the theology. Theology doesn't really matter because, <laughs> right. because in the practice, the language falls away. Uh, or, the, or the Lord Jesus, have mercy. Or just the word Jesus. And I use primarily just the word Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I chant this over and over and over again. But what happens is, as I ride, as I breathe in to, through my nose, I focus my mind. And I breathe down and I chant the chant uh, first syllable generally down into my belly and I pause and then I chant the second syllable back up again. And I repeat this process and I don't grip the prayer in my hand. I let it ride in my hand like a butterfly very gently. And I just repeat And when my mind wanders off from, I just go back to my prayer again. I go back to my chant and it trains the mind to focus with the breath. And then eventually what happens is that the prayer falls away and you just focus on the breath. And now you are in a thoughtful state of focused concentration. There's no language in this place. There's just focus on the breath. And then what happens is that the awareness of the breath falls away. It's like a trap door opens inside of you and you fall inside the silence. And inside this silence is peace. And inside this silence is, is your isness. And you can't stay there. It's very difficult to stay there because the mind engages. Oh, I'm in the place of silence. You're out again. So now you've got to begin with the prayer again and keep practicing. The, the idea is to learn to silence the mind. The other practice that I use is Kriya Yoga. And I, I, encountered, I encountered Kriya. I should say that I encountered Centering Prayer when I went to Catholic high school because I went to school, Catholic school, near this monastery where they developed this. So I was right there in the neighborhood. Um, I encountered Kriya Yoga by reading autobiography of a yogi after my death. And at the same time, I, I encountered uh, the Yoga Sutras by Pantajali, a 3,000-year-old book. They both talk about Kriya Yoga. 
I developed Kriya, I began to use Kriya Yoga in my Hatha Yoga practice, my physical yoga practice. And what I would do is, in my, I would, this is in 1980, um, and I was fortunate to be in uh, studying my pantomime. I did pantomime, but I, yes. I, was, in, I was in the Marcel Marceau's school. Uh, he had students and those students brought his school to the United States. And I was studying with students of his, uh, uh, of his school. And he, Marcel Marceau practiced Hatha Yoga. So I learned Hatha Yoga as part of my mind practice. And I integrated Kriya Yoga into it. And I would use my breath and my body and my mind as my prayer form. And so when I'd be in downward dog, for instance, I would, I would stay in downward dog and I would run through all of my muscular structure and my body and relax every single muscle that I wasn't using and tense the muscles that I was using and move my arms so that my skeletal structure supported as much of my posture as possible and stay there and breathe by looking inside my body. So I use my mind and my breath to look at my muscles. Looking at my muscles is part of the practice because what that does is that it trains you to look inside your body with your mind without your thoughts. So you're, you're moving your mind to the muscles, you're feeling it. And then what you can do once you develop this practice of being able to look inside your body without thinking thoughts, you can then take your mind and your breath inside your either sitting practice, I use Kriya Yoga in my sitting practice now too, but inside your active yoga practice, you by focusing your mind on your chakras and not imagining what they look like or what they sound like or what their meaning is or what their colors are or anything, you, no imagination at all. Set your mind inside the place where you think the chakra is and just stay there. Breathe into that space. And then you, and, and this practice teaches access to the subtle body. And so I practice. And, and this, so that these two things in combination, the, I, by practicing with my chakras um, over all these decades and finding the mulas in my hands and moving my prana between my, my hand and my fist, um, pardon me, my heart and my, and my palm, um, or moving it between the balls of my feet and my, and my heart, or my third eye, or my crown, or when I raise my hands above my head to the eighth and the ninth chakras, I just make myself bigger. I, I expand my soul outside my body. And I don't do this by imagination. I do this by mental focus without thought. And, and then what happens? So I make myself into a bigger container. So I make, the Kriya makes me into a bigger container. And the silence practice aims my inner eye at the divine. So, the, so one of the things that Meister Eckhart, who is a 13th century mystic, uh, wrote was the eye wherein I see God, God sees me. So this is what the practice of, of silence is about, is to get myself out of the way and aim my eye at the divine, not with expectation, just with presence. And these things, these contemplative practices in my life have made me like more antenna-like. So I'm becoming a better receptor for mystical experience. And I'm not seeking the mystical experience. I'm seeking the divine presence. I'm not seeking the gifts of God. I'm seeking the divine itself. I, that's what I want. I want the unity, the unitive state of being. I want the light. But what but the side effect is, is that I became like a beacon for this. And, and then I have more experiences, but not because I'm seeking them. I yes. seek the divine instead. Um, a side effect, an after effect is, are these mystical experiences. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Well, we need to wrap it up, but um, Peter, thank you so much for sharing. And if people do want to reach out to you, and I encourage my listeners to, to reach out to Peter. He, he's so great at, at, at getting back to getting back to people and, and talking and, and how would people find you? I'm, I'm at peterpanagor.love and I'm, at, I'm on YouTube too. I've got a, a channel under my name. But if you want to talk to me, it's peterpanagor.com. Yeah. And once again, his book, um, can you, let's see, I have the title of your book right here. Right here. I happen to have a copy. <laughs> right wonderful, wonderful. Heaven is beautiful. 
And once again, his past interview tells you all about both of his indie experiences and so much more. It's one of my favorite books of all time. So yeah, I really, I really mean that. Um, I love you. I love you too. Thank you so much. And and enjoy those leaves turning. Oh, it's beautiful here right now. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Okay, take good care. Peace and love, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.